their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hey, this is Bonnie and Maude. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And today on the show, we have a special guest with us in the studio apartment, Lyra Hill. Hello. Hi, Lyra. Hi. Lyra joins us from Chicago. Um, she's in town this week for the Brooklyn Zine Fest. Um, you are listening to this in the future, so that is past. Um, so looking forward to Brooklyn Zine Fest 2014. But Lyra is a comic book artist, a projectionist a performer slash performance artist, as you've begun to be called. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to your liking. Yeah, I prefer performer just because performance artist has a lot of bad connotations. And I performance is secondary to what else, the other things I do. Cool. So we'll hear a little bit about your projects later in the hour. But uh, when we were talking about what film to discuss today, you brought up Cabaret. And immediately, Ksenia and I were like, yes. <laughs> it's one of those movies I've always wanted to see, and uh-huh. I'm sort of shocked that I haven't, given yeah. that I love musicals mm-hmm. and vaudeville and Liza Minnelli and all of that. Yeah. Do you have a relation, a previous relationship with that movie, Ksenia? I do not. I mean, it was great to like finally have an excuse to watch it. It's yeah. just like one of those movies that has been in my mental queue for a long time. I'm actually someone who does not love musicals offhand, mm-hmm. but I find that every time I do watch a musical, I like fall for it. It's, <laughs> I'm just like one of those people who yeah. like, can't quite admit it, but there are a lot of musicals that I end up loving after I yeah. see them. So Lyra, what's your relationship with Cabaret? I love Cabaret. It's my favorite movie. How um, did you discover it originally? My mother loves musicals and she used to assign us musicals Every week we'd watch a new one. So I've seen a lot of them. I've seen a lot of them many, many times. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is another very important film to me, very different than Cabaret, but also pretty dark if you look under some of the layers. Um, But that's a different subject. Cabaret is a movie that my mother purchased at Costco, and we brought it home and watched it and... I remembered this today. The, the copy that we bought had a big scratch in it. So you could only watch the movie up until the scene where they're in the beer garden and they're singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which is the turning point of the film, right? And so I would watch that far and then I could never watch the rest of the movie. So I watched the first half of it. That maybe like such a sinister ending. Totally. Maybe like three times I watched it that way. And it was so frustrating that I had to go out and buy another copy. But it was very surprising when I watched the full film because it turns super dark mm-hmm. after that point. Um, it's a really eerie scene. And since then I've watched it. Dozens of times I dressed as Liza Minnelli for Halloween when I, my first year in Chicago. I had the same haircut. Nice. And <laughs> her haircut is something that fascinated me throughout her whole mm-hmm. look. Liza Minnelli actually went out while they were shooting and got that haircut on her own and came back and told Bob Fosse, who's the director, uh, she was like, I thought this worked for Sally Bowles. And he was like, you're right. That's, but she had a much more, there's, you can see earlier takes of her singing and she has kind of a bob, like a yeah. shoulder length bob. It's way more boring 
I did like that the haircut shifts a little bit throughout mm-hmm. the movie. It made it seem more realistic yeah. than if it had stayed uniform mm-hmm. through the whole yeah. thing. I found it both very representative of like the classic 20s hairstyle mm-hmm. with the kind of curly cues yeah. by, where like her sideburn it type was like area is. flapper, but with a twist. Yeah. Right. And, and then, then that crazy little widow's peak bangs yeah, yeah made her almost represent sort of like a witchy vampire mm-hmm. sort of character it all it looks part like part of the makeup you know that everybody's wearing with those pointy the pointy lips mm-hmm. the peaks of your i forget what the part of the lip that is but. yeah does that part of your lip have a name i don't even know the the funnel there, the like <laughs> snot funnel has a name. So it's the peaks around the snot funnel. <laughs> it's very reminiscent of her haircut. <laughs> um, before we get too far into um, Cabaret, I do mm-hmm. want to just talk about the plot a little bit for those who haven't seen it. Um, Cabaret, the film, which is what we're discussing today, right. is based off a Broadway play, which mm-hmm. is based off a... Book. Short story, yeah, short in a story book, where Sally Bowles is actually not a major character, mm-hmm. but she was kind of picked out of that setting, and like her story was expanded. Yeah, yeah. so we'll be mostly we'll be primarily focusing on the film, um, which does which did have some significant differences from the stage musical, yeah, which won a million Tonys and had a big revival in the eighties mm-hmm. and another big revival in the two thousands. And gave us Joel Grey right. as the MC, who is in the film as <laughs> right. well. So mm-hmm. um, it's 1931 mm-hmm. in Berlin, and Sally Bowles, played by Liza Minnelli, is an aspiring actress, an aspiring showgirl, mm-hmm. and she's sort of the star of the Kit of the Kit Kat Club mm-hmm. in Berlin. And Joel Grey is the MC. He is sort of the he's like the Greek chorus of mm-hmm. the film. He kind of sings most of the songs all of which except for the one you mentioned tomorrow belongs to me are all sung within the club so unlike normal musicals where all of the characters burst out into song to sort of advance the plot all the songs in cabaret are interesting because they take place in the club and sort of comment on Mm -hmm. the story that's happening around outside the club that's actually called a a backstage musical Mm -hmm. if the musical numbers in a musical take place in settings where they would really occur which is you even the tomorrow belongs to me is in a setting where it would really happen. It's like real people singing a song. It's not a break from reality. So musicals rub a lot of people the wrong way. And I've found in my conversations that backstage musicals are always easier for those people to accept because they don't break so harshly with reality. Hmm. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's almost odd to like call this a musical. If if I hadn't seen it categorized that way, I don't know mm-hmm. that I would call it that. It's just like a drama slash comedy that occasionally takes place in a club that involves singing. Mm-hmm. The songs are so important, though. You know, the the songs, the, the world of the cabaret is a, a mirror for everything else that goes on. Anytime anything's happening in the film, it has an accompanying musical number where, like you said, Joel Grey is kind of like the chorus where he's just commenting essentially on the other action. And often the movie will cut back and forth between these scenes to really juxtapose them um, pretty harshly or sometimes pretty obviously. Uh, It's a great strategy. It is. And I thought that the way that the film did that gave it almost sinister undertones because every time you're in the club between Mm -hmm. the way the lights are, between the costumes, between this like maniacal look in the MC's eyes, it's almost like you're descending into the underworld where there is music and there is sex and 
drinks and prostitutes, but everything outside of the club is also, I don't know, equally dark. So it seems so. The whole movie seems to take place in this like seedy Berlin underbelly. Yeah. Except a few moments which take place at like a giant beautiful mansion yeah <laughs> i mean there there is still a lot of laughter in this movie and yeah. there is comedy so it's not all dark and gloom right i think at the center there is the love story between sally bowles played by Liza Minnelli, and brian played by michael york comes to town and he's a british english teacher and mm-hmm. he's there to teach english to germans and she almost immediately seduces him there is some question about his sexuality and then their love story carries a lot of the rest of the film there's even a third person that comes into their relationship which i thought was really fascinating so can we talk a little bit about the love story and in my opinion i thought it kind of threw off heteronormative relationships as they usually are in musicals mm-hmm so, in movies. And in movies in general, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In many, most stories. Yeah, Helmut Grimm, I think, is an actor who plays Max, who's the third party. In the really, He's got that great, like, blonde mustache, which is always so evil when you have a blonde mustache. <laughs> it is, because you can barely see it, but it's there. Yeah, and he plays a rich baron who sees Liza Minnelli and then seduces her, essentially, with his money, because she loves money. There's a moment when she says... She comes in and she's wearing a mink coat and Brian's really upset because they're together at the at the time and Max is usurping their relationship. And Brian's like, where'd you get the coat? And uh, Sally says, oh, Max loves buying things, <laughs> which is, I always thought was funny. Um, His name is Maximilian, yeah, which I love. Maximilian. And so Brian and Max have a very uh, strained relationship at the start. And then there's these scenes where you see them looking at each other really intensely And eventually, uh, after Max disappears visually from the narrative, it's revealed that Brian and Sally were sleeping with him. I thought the the dialogue in that scene was amazing because she's talking about, I think she's talking about running off with Max and possibly Mm -hmm. marrying him because he's gone to Argentina. And Brian goes, screw Max. And she goes, I am. And he goes, me too. Yeah. Um, that's when I started liking the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I wasn't sure for a while. It, uh, the way their relationship actually opens was rubbing me the wrong way Mm -hmm. because it, it had that sort of, I mean, now it's, now it's a trope, the whole, um, uh, manic pixie dream girl thing going where he comes in and she's just chattering at him and uh-huh. she's not listening and she's so goofy and funny and like drinking all the time and like I thought it would continue like this and uh-huh. once we saw the scene of um the three of them all about to kiss I realized that this was a different kind of movie yeah. and that it was going beyond the standard rom-com, rom-drama, mm-hmm. whatever, um, and it was going to become more interesting. Um, it, the thing that I actually wrote, I think I talked about this before, but the thing that I wrote my college thesis on was how like love triangles, which involve two men and a woman, are actually 
more about the two men wanting to be together and the woman just being a means for them to connect with each other or like an excuse. And so to like see that realized here was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a feeling when I was watching that, Ksenia, that you would love that (laughs) because love triangles are sort of your forte. (laughs) You shrug. It's true. Yeah. Um, I I just... uh, I appreciated that it went there, that it wasn't shy about actually going into bisexuality and the showing that like these two men, as much as they are envious of each other, are drawn to each other, mm-hmm. partially because of their affection for, um, sorry, not Liza, Sally, Sally. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, uh, what I thought was interesting was Maximilian was going to be this thing that I thought would corrupt them, uh-huh. but ultimately he just like shows up, disappears. Does he really change their lives? I feel like they're already corrupted, you know? Yeah. yeah. He's shown as this like evil figure who is about to like do something. Like I kept anticipating something mm-hmm. and I, f- he does kind of corrupt their lives because it, one point Sally gets pregnant mm-hmm. and she's not sure who the father is, if it's Brian or if it's Max. And then there is even a strange moment where it's suggested that it the father of the child could possibly be the MC mm-hmm. who up until now is this sexualized asexual character. We see him dressed as a man, we see him mm-hmm. dressed as a woman, we see him going after men and women and drag queens. Mm-hmm. But in a way that feels almost kind of unintentional, it feels more campy than like he actually is attracted to any of these people. He seems very much more in love with himself. Right. But there is a scene where he comes up behind Sally and grabs her breasts. And I wondered if that was the film suggesting that maybe he's the father of the child. Um, as it turns out, she never finds out because she gets an abortion. And that is sort of the straw that breaks the relationship. Yeah, she sells that mink coat that Max bought her mm-hmm. to get a illegal abortion. Um, there's a moment in the cabaret when they're leaving, and I think it's not the moment when Joel Grey grabs her breasts, but Brian's picking her up from the cabaret, and there's an uh, implication that she really is, could be sleeping with anyone. She says, don't you trust me? And he doesn't really respond, and you cut to like the dwarf performer with his scary mannequin and it's everyone it's just like there's all these creepy shots of the cabaret performers and the cabaret audience and often you know sometimes you'll cut to the sh- the mc in a completely unrelated scene and it'll just be one shot of his face looking into the camera and looking so scary or like when she first meets mac it cuts to a shot of the mc and he's just like money and then it goes back to the scene it was he's, very lynchian mm, totally in many ways yeah um, but I, yeah, I think that that's definitely a question is maybe the MC is the father, maybe Max, maybe Brian, maybe somebody else who Sally thought could get her a job, you know? I think, um, Sally's sexuality is seen from many different angles. On one hand, she openly admits that she will sleep with anybody who might be able to get her a job or kind of help her step up the ladder in her acting career. Mm -hmm. Um, She is also demonized for it, but she's also seen as sort of a guru. Mm -hmm. Um, In a subplot is this guy Fritz, who is one of Brian's uh, English students. And 
another English student of Brian's is a very wealthy Jewish woman, and Fritz initially wants to go after her for her money, and then he ends up falling in love with her. And I, she's very virginal. I think she yeah. might actually be a she virgin. Is, she's a virgin, She's yeah. a virgin. So um, she asks Sally for sex advice, and mm-hmm. she's sort of like, Sally, so you've slept with a lot of people? This is very interesting. Like, tell mm-hmm. me everything about it. She seems to see Sally as this, like, uh, wise and woman even though i think she's only supposed to be like 19 and younger than her well before that even fritz asks sally or somehow brian's talking to sally and sally's like the only thing to do with virgins is to pounce Mm -hmm. that's the way to get him because the you know natalia is the jewish girl and she's really giving fritz the cold shoulder and so fritz pounces on her he basically just starts having sex with her and then she's into it and she falls in love with Fritz too and that's when so it's Sally's advice that gets her into trouble in the first place and then she turns to Sally for advice again when she doesn't know what to do about being in love with Fritz because she's a Jew and Fritz is apparently Christian although we find out at the end that he's also Jewish and Sally's advice only really amounts to like well are you having fun yeah (laughs) like as long as you're having fun like what's the problem yeah she seems to take a really uh, nonconformist view of relationships and sex, mm-hmm. though, which is great to see in a 1930s setting, um, especially in rising Nazi Germany. Yeah, absolutely. When it's everything else is in the society is so repressive, and she is allowed to get away with her sexual shenanigans, and it doesn't seem like abortion is even that taboo even mm-hmm. though it is illegal but it's there's never a question that that is a viable option for her right but do you think part of the reason she's acting like this is just to distract herself from all these awful things that are beginning to take place in berlin do you think she would still be so free and i don't know i think that she would be that way no matter what i feel like she's not of all the characters in the film, she seems the most oblivious to the Nazi mm-hmm. stuff going on. But what I really appreciate about her character is that, sure, there's like the manic pixie dream girl stuff where it's a kind of a sad, closed off young man who's brought into the world by this very gregarious, dramatic woman. But she's so much more complicated than that. She's a really, really wounded character yeah. and her flaws are on display. Absolutely. She's definitely not perfect, and no one ever ever pretends that she's perfect. At the same time, she makes so many mistakes, and she's never punished for them. I think in in most movies where you have a female main character who is obviously promiscuous, who has an illegal abortion, who cheats on someone, and is just really insensitive, you know, all the time... (laughs) Usually she gets murdered at the end or like finds out that she should be really ashamed of herself or something like that happens. But at the end, she's right. You know, at the end, she's she's the one who ends the relationship with Brian and gets the abortion because she's like, look, this wouldn't work out. We don't have a happy ending. If I get married to you and move to Cambridge, we're going to go crazy and you're going to start sleeping with dudes like it's not going to work out. This is better this way. This is my life. That's your life. We have to split up and. It's kind of a happy ending. In a way. I mean, it's really dark because the Nazis are taking power. and. Mm-hmm. But on the... a personal level, there's relief. Right. It's a bit nihilistic, but it's, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's the best outcome, I think, for her. I 
agree. There was a moment that almost reminded me of Gone with the Wind, mm. where she is still pregnant and... Are you going to spoil Gone with the Wind for me? <laughs> what? You've never seen Gone with I've the Wind? I've never seen it I'm either. Like halfway through. <laughs> God, you guys. So now I can't say this. I know the, the curtains and everything's on fire, something, something. Oh my God. Next episode, we're going there. It's four hours long. You're going to love every minute of it. We're going to talk about Vivian Leigh forever. Anyway. So, okay. So I, it, without spoiling Gone with the Wind... <laughs> I will say, um, how do I put this now? It reminded me of Gone with the Wind because tragedy befalls a main character um, after the horrible thing she's done. She is punished for her actions. And Sally isn't, and she sort of takes matters into her own hands. Mm, This is sort of failing now. (laughs) Um, do you want to switch gears <laughs> yeah let's switch gears can we talk about the aesthetic of the movie a little bit yeah. yeah um i was very surprised because apparently i didn't know what cabaret was and i thought it would be like burlesque and all the posters and clips that i'd seen in the past seemed very sexy and like perfect and then once i started it's like whoa this is grungy and gross and she looks like a clown yeah. and it was disturbing. <laughs> yeah. It's uh the the film is very different than the play, not only because the film I never even seen the play before. You know, I haven't either. I just know this about it. <laughs> but the so the original book is I am a camera and it was it was an autobiographical short stories. The character Brian was the the guy who wrote the book and there is a question of sexuality in the book. That's part of the book, but it was kind of removed for the play. A lot of the darkness was removed for the play. Um, and Bob Fosse, in making the film, really wanted to put it back into the story. And when he hired all of these actresses to be like the cabaret girls is the first thing you see in the movie. The MC's introducing them. And they're all, they all look like clowns. They're like really sweaty and pale and kind of yeah. sick looking. And they have just caked makeup and huge eyelashes. And he, he actually act, asked all these actresses who were very fit, beautiful women to gain weight for the movie to gain weight and to put them in these really unflattering clothes. And they were really upset about it, (laughs) apparently. It's not glamorous at all. No, they're, you know, for lack of a better word, they're straight up ugly. They kind of reminded me of like Nancy Spungen in a way, (laughs) in Sid and Nancy, where it's sort of making strides at achieving this uh, sexual beauty in terms of the hair and the clothes and the makeup but when you actually get close up it's not appealing no i'm i'm sort of surprised that like burlesque has made a resurgence um but cabaret has not it seems like so much more of a punk thing yeah and i think like if kids were doing cabaret right now they could make for for some really interesting performances and Mm -hmm. costumes and Something I read an article or a, a critical essay about cabaret <laughs> once that had a really good conversation about drag in the film because there is drag. You know the MC Joel Gray. He's very mm-hmm. uh, what is it when you're masculine and feminine uh, uh, androgynous. androgynous. Yeah, he's very androgynous. He was, and there there is also one of the cabaret girls is a, a transvestite um, cross dressing man. 
And all of the women in the film, in the cabaret, are made to look almost like transvestites as well. Even Liza Minnelli wears so much makeup that she looks like she, and she has like such a, she has such a small, like little boy's body with her very short hair, you know. Um, this article was making an argument that the whole movie is really a gay movie. That maybe the reason that Sally and Brian get together is because she is also androgynous in this way. And that works for him. And she's the only biological female that he's been able to have sex with. Mm -hmm. There is, when they first, when she first tries to seduce him, he blows her off saying he's tried to have sex with three other girls and it, was and it a never disaster. worked. Yeah. Right. And then she seduces him again and they have sex and then they're giggling after like, those weren't the right girls. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I can see that argument mm -hmm. that perhaps because Liza Minnelli takes on the androgyny of the cabaret and the fluid gender of the cabaret, mm -hmm. it allows them to have this romantic and sexual relationship. Yeah. The whole movie is pretty gritty, too, aside from the costumes and the designs. The camera moves around a lot. It's uh, very dark in the cabaret. It's very, the film is very grainy. And the editing is one of my favorite parts about this film. It's so uh, manic, going back and forth. And there's so many moments of violence in the editing. Like, there's the when Sally and Brian are first hanging out, and she's like, come stand under the train, we're gonna, and then she like screams right when the train comes. Mm -hmm. And the film cuts on her like blood curdling, it's a fun scream, but it's still blood curdling, and it cuts right from there to the scene of the manager of the Kit Kat Club getting the shit kicked out of him by Nazis. Mm -hmm. And then it's like immediately cuts again to the inside of the cabaret and the music's really loud and there's like a drum beat right then. There's all these moments where you don't expect it and violence is right in your face. The whole Nazi thing is kind of going on in the background, but whenever we see it, it's really startling mm -hmm. and very chilling. I thought Bob Fosse brought a lot of his sort of herky-jerky yeah. uh, movements because he's a choreographer first, mm -hmm. and his style is so... I, I love his style. Um, it's a lot of jerky movements and, mm -hmm. like, hands and feet and bodies at sort of weird, almost, like, disturbing angles. And yeah. the movie, as he was the director, the movie also felt like that. It felt like there were, you know, elbows sticking out where they shouldn't be sticking out and hips, you know, all over the place. Totally, yeah, <laughs> I see that. So the editing felt very much like that, and I didn't realize that until you, you know, mentioned those moments. Mm-hmm. The, that scene that we were talking about before where the three of them are drunk and spinning around the, mm -hmm. where they're, they look like they're about to kiss is mm -hmm. when they're all really, really drunk and they just start dancing in this circle and there's this long shot on their faces in close-up, um, spinning around, looking at each other. I once, for a film class, analyzed all the camera movements in that scene. They use three cameras. <laughs> <laughs> That's the scene where they become a thruple. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the scene where you get it. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I think, I think I know what's happening, yeah. maybe. Yeah. It's, it was interesting, too, the turn in that scene, because immediately after it appears that the three of them are about to kiss, Brian has drank too much, and he is about to be sick, so they sort of dump him on the couch, and then <laughs> Max and Sally presumably go off to have some fun. I wasn't sure if that meant that Brian was sort of putting a hold on the relationship progressing between the three of them, but clearly it wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they definitely never have a threesome. 
they don't. I, yeah. I found that odd. It's well, they're not. They the when they are sleeping, when they're all sleeping with each other, it's not in the open. Mm-hmm. It's still cheating. They're both cheating on each other with the same person, you know. And then there's a funny moment after they blow after the blow up where they find out that Brian and Sally are both cheating, and then they get a letter from Max that's like, "Oh, sorry, I can't take you to Africa. Here's three hundred dollars or whatever the money is." And um, they split it. Yeah, they split it, and Sally says that it, on an hour by hour basis, it puts them about equal with the other tenant of the house, who's a streetwalker. Yeah, all prostitutes in this movie. <laughs> How old were you when you saw it? Uh, when I first saw it, I was probably twelve or thirteen. But again, I only saw the first half. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, I saw like Breaking the Waves when I was thirteen. I, I was the only person in my family who sat through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. What do you think drew you to this movie so much? Well, I love musicals a lot because they have so much license to do whatever they want. And I love the darkness and the humor of Cabaret. I really like movies that feel despair, I think, while still exploring, like, interesting human relations. Mm -hmm. And I just really love Sally Bowles. She's a She's not somebody I really, really want to hang out with, you know, but she's such a unique character and she's so well drawn. And the moments when she's completely, she's, I mean, it's just an incredible performance for one thing. The last, one of the last scenes is uh, Liza Minnelli singing Cabaret on stage and it's heartbreaking. That song is actually a really sad song. It's about just like live, freeze, die young, essentially, you know. I just, I think I really, value for the first part of my life I always really valued movies where women stayed single at the end and where there was a breakup that was good for somebody I think that I just was really hungry for those movies mm-hmm. pretty different character but heartburn uh have you seen heartburn no, with Meryl Streep I remember uh, you guys talking about this in an earlier episode and when I heard that, because I've been listening to this podcast, and when I heard you guys talk about that, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I feel the same way. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a relief as a woman to, like, see that and be like, oh, so I can have resolution as a person being alone. Like, yeah. I don't have to be with a man to, like, feel relief at the end of the story, right. even if there's a child involved, like, in Heartburn. I think a woman with agency, too, and something that really appeals to me about Sally Bowles, even though she's kind of crazy in this respect, is that she's so ambitious and she's so arrogant. You know, she's also very, very broken and self-conscious, but she's an arrogant character and really ambitious, and it's okay, Mm -hmm. I think. There's just a lot of elements, a lot of messy elements that really appealed to me um in the play as far as I understand she's actually not a very good singer how do you think that would have changed the character for you and the story would you still like her as much I don't think so I I think a lot of what is so appealing is that she is very naturally talented so you still root for her Mm -hmm. if she was a bad singer then you'd just be like this girl is delusional like she's She's still delusional when she's a good singer, but if she was a bad singer, I'd be like, why am I, like, I just would feel so bad for her. Whereas in the movie, I guess, 
I don't really feel bad for her because ultimately, I think what it is is that ultimately you kind of get that she knows how messed up she is Mm -hmm. and that's just okay with her. That's how she's chosen Mm -hmm. to live her life, I think. Yeah. She's very open about the things that hurt her when it feels like the time is right to be open about them. To acquaintances, she paints this picture of her relationship with her father where they're Mm -hmm. very close and they tell each other everything and, you know, he's like a, he's an ambassador, I think. So he's like, you know, takes her on fabulous trips. Um, But in reality, he won't spend extra money to send her a telegram with more than 10 words Mm -hmm. and they actually don't have a close relationship. And there is this moment where she kind of breaks down in self-doubt in front of Brian and mm-hmm. reveals that she actually has a terrible relationship with her father mm-hmm. and she feels like she's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And then Brian builds her up and says, no, you're an amazing performer. And she's like, oh, you really mean it? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, because he is encouraging her, she is able to, you know, it makes her love him and herself more. Yeah. And that's the moment when they sleep together for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's what does it for him, too, is to see her reveal Vulnerable. herself. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I wanted to bring up, or something that you brought up, Lyra, is that this musical is different because it does go there in terms of darkness, in terms mm-hmm. of the dark elements, in, ter- in terms of grinding its characters down, which is rare for musicals. Yeah. It's not completely unique in that respect. Mm-hmm. However... There are a number of musicals that go there that are really pretty dark. Uh, another fantastic film is Bob Fosse's last film, All That Jazz, which is a autobiographic musical about a power, not power, uh, about a, like a con- very controlling choreographer and producer who dies of a heart attack when he's 50. Bob Fosse made it in his late 40s and then died of a heart attack. Or I could be wrong, but he died like in his 50s after making the movie and the the woman who plays the girlfriend the main character's girlfriend in the film was his real girlfriend I think and it's it's way it's way more experimental than cabaret I think it's a very strange film and it it goes he's like producing a play in it so it it's in his kind of 80s you know so there's a lot of like 80s dance sequences that are still great like it's a fabulous film um, and then it goes on this weird psychedelic, like, thing at the end where he has all this sickness. It's like him being delusional in the hospital. I could be wrong about a lot of this because I've only seen it once, but it's a very dark movie. And it has a similar kind of creepy seediness to it. So, but are there other filmmakers that have done dark musicals? Yeah, there's... um. You know, nobody really does it like Bob Fosse. Apparently. But uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is a really dark musical. The uh, The movie's not that good, but it was really, it was written as a play, and then they didn't have money to make a play. So the first release of Jesus Christ Superstar was a, just a soundtrack. It was just like a rock opera soundtrack. Hmm. And it's by far the best version of the story. Um, the performances are really great. Uh, it's the last one of the last songs is Jesus getting crucified. And you don't really get any darker than that in a musical, <laughs> you know? And it's, like, not even a song. It's just kind of wailing and the sound of hammers and Jesus, God. like, pleading. And it's, it is like, weird synthesizer stuff going on. And 
it's great. It's like a great weird sound piece. Um, that's just another... to have to have at your party in the background. <laughs> yeah. Check this out, guys. Check out this hot track. <laughs> that's a, a movie that I really love. Um, or not, I don't love the movie, but a, the soundtrack I really love. I guess other dark musicals would be West Side Stories, yeah. the ultimate tragedy. Um, and also Tommy. You mentioned rock opera. That yeah. made me think of The Who and Tommy. That was very dark. I never I... saw it on stage, but the soundtrack, of course. I have never seen Tommy either. I really like to. West Side Story was another one of my favorite films. Mine too. Yeah. I, I was just thinking like it's, I think of musicals as more upbeat and like happy and big grins. But then I realized that like way before I started watching musicals, um, my mom would take me to some operas and like, mm. that's all tragedy. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a so, really good point. Of course there is a background of tragedy um, for Musical, musical yeah. performances, yeah. There's a, I, I think people most people usually associate musicals with that kind of style, and it's because the heyday was in the '50s when musical, or '30s and through '50s when musicals were like escapism. You know, you just wanted to see all these, and MGM just took musicals and ran with them and made these incredible spectacles where everyone's happy and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, a lot of those films are really great, but they're, they're hard for some people to take seriously, I think. Mm-hmm. That idea of escapism is really interesting, especially in the world of cabaret, mm-hmm. because it seems like people come to the cabaret also for escapism. Yeah, that's true. From the horrors in the streets, from, you know, the Nazi party taking over. And once you're in the cabaret, the songs are all... They, ha- they have a variety of messages, but the one that I liked the most was when um, the, the message of, I can't remember what the song is called, but you probably know, the mm. one with the gorilla. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you could see her through my eyes. If you could see her through my yeah. eyes. And that's where the MC is sort of dancing with a woman dressed in a gorilla suit and saying, if you saw her like I saw her, you would see how beautiful she is. Mm-hmm. In the case of the movie, it's the gorilla is standing in for Jewish people because people are, uh, the Nazis are going after any Jews in relationships or any non-Jews dating Jews. Yeah. Um, But I also liked that message of like live and let live in terms (laughs) of the bisexuality and the threesome relationships too. Like, you know, whatever kind of relationship floats your boat, you should do that. They have that song, Two Ladies, that the MC sings about Mm -hmm. having a threesome with two women Mm -hmm. and how it's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> how happy they all are yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very goofy <laughs> and so i i imagine that people are coming to the cabaret for these sort of life-affirming messages even though mm-hmm. they're kind of radical life-affirming messages um mm-hmm. except in the end where we pan across the cabaret and it's kind of all filled with nazis yeah which is a great the whole movie is also a, a mirror the structure of it is is mirror like it opens on this warped mirror it closes on the mirror with the same song and the same drum roll and then within it, there's all of these like smaller worlds that you visit when you're outside of the cabaret. Um, can we talk about the Tomorrow Belongs to Me before yes, we run out of time? Definitely. That moment that in a completely different class in film school, I analyzed that scene. <laughs> Wait, Just so you really guys quick, know. how many papers have you written on this movie? Yeah. Uh, just two. Okay. Yeah, just two papers. But I've read even more papers. 
so Tomorrow Belongs to Me is when they go to the beer garden and it's after the scene where they're all, all three of them are turning and they look like they're going to kiss each other. Mm-hmm. And so Sally, they leave Sally in the car because she's drunk and hungover and Max and Brian go into this beer garden. And while they're enjoying a cigarette and a really intense stare, a young Aryan boy gets up and starts singing this song, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which was the Nazi youth anthem. And as he's singing, everyone else in the beer garden starts getting up and singing with such fervor, it's terrifying. And you start, you pan down his body and he's wearing, you see that he's a Nazi. And then at the end of the song, he like see Kyle's and it's just, it's so scary. Um, it's a, the moment when you really see that things are not going to be okay for anybody <laughs> in the movie. And that's when Max, they go back to like Brian and Max leave the beer garden, beer garden while the song is still going on. And Brian's like, do you still think you can control them to Max? Because earlier Max had been like, oh, we can control the Nazis. We'll just have them get rid of the communists and then Mm -hmm. we'll take them down. But that's when Max is, I think that's when Max leaves the country because he's like, fuck, I can't deal with this. It was a really powerful scene. It's one of the, the best scenes in any movie I can think of where you really understand a political movement taking over a populace. A, a, all of that information, like the strength of this belief and the the desire of the people to feel strong and to feel like they're going somewhere is um, communicated through the very simple scene. So you said that song was actually the song of Nazi youth? Mm-hmm. And then it... I Is it? Or it no. was a song that people sang? No, it was so, right? written for the movie. Oh, I'm totally Since wrong. Then, <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have stopped you earlier. Yeah. I hadn't realized, but... Um, I, I read on Wikipedia that mm. it was actually written for the movie, but since then it has been performed by some um, Nazi bands. Oh. Um, and um, it was written by, I don't remember their oh, names. Candor and Ebb? Yeah. Two Jewish Whoa. men. Mm-hmm. So that's all kind of that's twisted. Weird, yeah. Oh, they it's were a really of... catchy song. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, weren't they accused of anti-Semitism after Cabaret came out because of songs like that and they were like we're actually jewish this is a comment if they had (laughs) used an actual song written by the nazis i think that would be more anti-semitic than writing a song in the style Mm -hmm. yeah um that's good to know thanks sorry no don't be sorry i I was just (laughs) listening i always thought it was a really a nazi song and my brother and i we would sing together all the time and we love that song so we would sing that song and just feel bad when we were singing it because we thought we were singing a Nazi song. We would only sing it when nobody else was around. <laughs> but Except it, your Jewish friends. <laughs> yeah. We'd actually bring all our Jewish friends over and then sing it. To them. Perfect. That's a joke. Um, do that. Let's do a wrap-up. Can we ask a couple questions just about you? Maybe? Yeah. All right. Tell us about being a lady projectionist. It's great. There's. I actually work with three other women at the theater I work at, which is the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic state-of-the-art theater. Uh, We show all kinds of movies, foreign films, older films, experimental films. We show every, we can show any format. We can't show 70 millimeter, but we can show pretty much anything else. So a lot of people come to our theater for special events and stuff like that. And it's great because before I started working there, I would go there all the time. And so now I get to see even more movies, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's not that fun to watch movies from the projection booth. But sometimes if my coworker is really nice, they'll let me go downstairs and watch it for real. 
I just feel really good being around film um, and being exposed to not just the new foreign films that are coming out, or we, we do this like big European Union film festival that's really intense. We show about 60 movies in a, mm-hmm. in a month. We only have two screens, so that's a lot. Um, the, the European Union film festival is always full of sex farces. <laughs> they, there's so many, like they love sex farces in movies. We, we show so many movies about the Holocaust. It is like... Wait, sex farce Holocaust movies? Sometimes. Well, no. <laughs> well, that's cabaret, right? <laughs> that's true, that's true. <laughs> well, no, I guess they're usually separate subjects. But even outside of the EU Film Festival, there's so many movies about the Holocaust. And then people always come to see them. A lot of our clientele is older, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of elderly people, and they love movies about the Holocaust. Actually, the last documentary I went to see there, I mean, it was about two older ladies, but it went back to the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah, it's a popular... So that's your specialty. That's <laughs> <laughs> my specialty. No, I get really sick of those ones. But my favorite is all the experimental stuff we show. There's some really great programming. Thank you for keeping the art of projecting movies alive. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to. I mean, I don't really have any power over it, and it's, it is changing. There's a lot of theaters, mainstream theaters, it, it's all automated. So the curtains, the lights, which we do by hand... I mean, it's buttons, you know, but you have to time it. You have to push the button yourself. It doesn't push itself. The whole thing is automated. So there's actually nobody in the projection booth at a lot of new cinemas. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I've been to a number of screenings where it's just like there's a pop-up on the screen and we have to like go get someone and 15 minutes later, maybe the trailers start, but it's just the sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's really important to have people behind the scenes actually we, doing this. We, I feel very privileged to be working at a place that has extremely high standards for projection. Uh, I also work as a film archivist at my other job, which is also fun. I deal with a lot of 16 millimeter elements from um, 1966 to 1984 from Kartemkin Films, which is the documentary company that made Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters. I've been going through their archive and taking care of it. I find all kinds of weird stuff because right now I'm going through the room that wasn't their official films. It's like stuff that other people left there or films that never got finished or commercials for McDonald's that they were paid to do, uh, camera tests, just like them hanging out with their friends, just the really weird footage. Is that stuff that you'll ever show or will it go into an exhibit? anywhere or like will the will it get to see the light of day yeah the, actually one of them probably the best example is a film called naked sandwich which was <laughs> i think i told gasenia about this uh gordon quinn who's the, one of the founders of kartemkin and still a creative director um he says it was a camera test but it's hard to believe because the film it's a it was 12 minutes of footage that's been edited into like a four minute film and it's complete, you know, they, it was a camera test that turned into a complete movie. It starts with a woman chopping sandwich ingredients, then she takes off all her clothes. She smears herself with butter and mayonnaise, lies on a table, puts all the sandwich ingredients on her body in a very aesthetically pleasing way. It's just the only part that actually maybe would be a camera test. <laughs> um, and then a naked man comes into the room holding another naked woman. 
and drops the second naked woman on the first and they make a naked sandwich and everybody laughs and like comes in and starts eating the vegetables. Oh my God. And it's so great. Like there's, it's so great to just open because it's the first thing that you see when you open the database is naked sandwich pops up. It really is a good way to start your day. And um, my supervisor, Carolyn Faber, took it and digitized it. And she's going to be presenting it actually at Bastard Symposium, which is um, in New York in, I think, a week or two. And Bastards is, it's called that because there's another archivist symposium called Orphans. And so Bastards is where less academics and more of the real people who are doing the weirder stuff or have more hands-on stuff, they get together and have a bunch of talks. And she has digitized Naked Sandwich to present as Bastards on a talk about like the other stuff that you find in archives cool. and why that's worthwhile, you know, why you should really save everything because there are treasures that people might think, might not think are important. And Ksenia and I have spoken at length about women being eaten and representing food <laughs> in cinema. Oh, really? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We, we did a show called uh, Watching You Eat last oh, year. Oh, yeah. Um, and there is a part of our presentation about women sort of acting as means to food or body parts being food items themselves. This is a perfect film for you guys. Yeah, yeah. we've got to watch that. <laughs> um, cool. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about that. All sure. of those projects sound amazing. Um, and where can we find more information? Where can our listeners find more information on what you do and those kinds of projects? So plug time. Okay, plugs. My name is Lyra Hill. You can go to lyrahill.com. Uh, that's L-Y-R-A-H-I-L-L dot C-O-M. <laughs> and I also, um, I run a performative comics reading series, which involves a lot of projection. It's actually really great to have a film background for the comic stuff that I do is it's always very like multimedia, a lot of cables, you know, and I know how to do all that stuff because I'm a projectionist. So uh, if you want to learn more about Brain Frame, which is what it, this series is called <laughs> in a roundabout way, um, you can go to brainframe.tumblr.com. It's also on Facebook, facebook.com slash brainframe. And we'll post links to all of those on our site. Yeah, it's all easily accessible um, and really fun. So check it out. Lyra, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us on Bonnie and Maud today. It was really fun to talk cabaret with you. I think um, I'm going to go watch all that jazz and go down the Bob Fosse wormhole after this. Excellent. Thank you for having me. This is great. I love talking about cabarets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad we got to do this. What good is sitting alone in your room or come hear the music play? to the cabaret put down the knitting the book and the broom it's time for a holiday life is a cabaret ocean so come to the cabaret come taste the wine come hear the band come blow that horn start celebrating right this way what good's permitting some prophet of doom to wipe every smile away? Life is a cabaret.
Rock. So come to the camp. 